and welcome to Dev Discussions. I'm your host, Sean McCool, and today I'm speaking with Matt Stauffer and Dan Sheets, owners of the web agency Titan. They've agreed to share their knowledge about working with developers, and I'm going to ask them questions about what developers need to know about business. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Uh, do you think you could tell me a little bit about yourselves and about your company? Sure, I'll start. Um, I'm Dan Sheets. I'm a partner and managing director at Titan. Um, so we are a web and software development consultancy uh, based in Chicago. Um, we're based in Chicago, but I'm the only one here. Uh, we're, you know, the the company was was conceived and and formed by Matt and I when he was living uh, living in Chicago, and we met in a co-working space uh, about three years ago. Um, but uh, since then, Matt has moved to Florida, and the company has formed and and grown entirely as a remote organization. So so we've been uh, very intentional about that, and um, we can talk more about that uh, as we go on. But uh, yeah, so to give a little bit of background on what we do, um, I'll, I'll I'll let Matt talk about the the technical aspects. But um, you know. Uh, I think the thing that probably makes us most unique is uh, the types of relationships that we have with clients um, and with other uh, other groups that we work with. Um, so for a small organization, we tend to have uh, fewer and larger clients, uh, and that's you know a function of uh, partially of me having been around the industry for a long time and um, you know uh, sort of following my my smart and interesting friends uh, as they've um, as they've gotten you know jobs where they have access to. Uh, to more influence, et cetera. Um, and also just a part of, of how, of how we work. Well, um, we work best when, uh, our, our clients sort of let us behind the curtain and, uh, and really let us become an, like an embedded partner or a part of their, a part of their team, um, as opposed to just an agency that, you know, we can sort of throw hours at or we define projects and we just execute. We really like to be involved as early as possible, um, on uh, any type of initiative that we're involved in. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about how we operate. Um, you know, uh, the way that um, uh, that technology uh, fits in is something that Matt can definitely talk more about. Uh, so go ahead, Matt. Yeah. So my name is Matt Stauffer. I'm the um, technical director at, at Titan. Um, and uh, what we do as a company is basically come up with solutions using usually web-based technologies to the needs of our clients. And usually that ends up, you know, recently it's been in the Laravel space and front-end web development and mobile. Um, but it's more about kind of getting to know the clients and figuring out what they need and then using the resources available to us, whether it's internal or external or whatever, to, to solve those needs. And so uh, Dan mentioned he's the managing director, so a lot of what he does has to do with business development and, and managing the business and what it takes to run a business. And a lot of what I'm doing, I mean, we both share those responsibilities, um, but a lot of what I'm doing is more about figuring out the spe specific technical solutions and hearing the client's needs and understanding, you know, we together figure out the client's needs. Um, and my work is a little bit more about figuring out what technologies and what opportunities and which developers and which, you know, platforms as a service, whatever, what things that are available in our toolkit are going to meet their needs. So does that mean that you tend to work a little bit more with the developers, Matt? 
Yeah, uh, my my day to day. I mean, I would say probably Dan and I are split in that both of us work with the clients, both of us run the business. But then when we split up, he's spending a lot more time in terms of business development and and continuing relationships and finances and all that stuff. And I'm spending a lot more time with the with the developers and in the code. The reason I wanted to talk to you guys is because I wanted to get some insight into what it's like to run a business to work with developers. From a non-developer perspective, and I know that you both have uh, technical backgrounds, so you can kind of bridge that gap, but I do believe that uh, developers could really benefit from having a little bit of peek behind those curtains. For sure, yeah. I mean, I, I think that I can I can shed a little bit of light there, even though, you know, it, it's, it's nice to have uh, a discussion like this because it, it makes me step back and kind of look critically at what, at what I do, even though... You know, in the end, what I do is uh, just wind up being responsible for making sure that our company continues to exist and, and hopefully succeed. So, you know, on a day-to-day basis, I may be I may be having a discussion about you know long-term goals with a client or even a potential client, maybe even just another group of developers or designers, people that we might work with in the future. You know, uh, doing that nebulous thing you know called fostering relationships, whatever that uh, whatever that really means. Um, and you know, I, I that's actually a good place to uh, to enter here because. Uh, uh, that idea of fostering relationships, it turns out I've been around the industry for, I mean, getting towards 20 years now. Um, and I wouldn't have thought of it like this 10 or 15 years ago that, you know, what I was doing was, uh, you know, the people I was interacting with and the friends that I, that I was making and, you know, the sort of big discussions we were having would end up having a lot to do with my future. It was just really, you know, finding interesting people and, um, you know, becoming friends with them and building, just just being loyal to them. Um, and in the end, I guess what I was doing was fostering relationships, and and that's um, ultimately when you're doing business development. I mean, you have to figure out how to, you know, how how to have someone who's a friend and a colleague, and and have it not be weird. Uh, that's a that's something I know that some people have struggled with, um, and something that um, I've been lucky enough to do to do okay at. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know if that lets anybody behind the curtain, but it definitely is uh, something that I think a lot about now, that what I was doing in the past was really just hanging out with people and, and trying to think big things, you know, and fast forward a bunch of years and, you know, we're doing some pretty cool and, and amazing projects with them that I, I didn't necessarily think I'd ever get a chance to work on. So so I, that's pretty cool. What are the some, some of the realities of what it's like for you to interact with clients? What kind of things um, are you doing to actually meet people and to build trust and to build those relationships uh, so that they can kind of evolve into something that, you know, your companies can work together? That's a great question. Um, so why don't I start and then Matt can, can jump in too. But, um, you know, as far as meeting people and getting those opportunities go, uh, it's been pretty organic over the years, so it's not as if, you know, I've been uh, scouring LinkedIn and trying to find, you know, uh, folks that I can reach out to, you know, kind of a cold way. Um, it's really been, um, you know, mo- most of the work that we end up doing or the or the, the big relationships we end up having come because we already have an, an existing relationship with someone at the organization. Uh, having said that... Um, you know, in order to, to get a big company to trust a, a very small group of developers uh, on really mission critical things um, is something that requires a ton of trust. Uh, because even though we have individual track records, you know, that they can check into, you know, ultimately, um, 
some of the opportunities we've we've been given, there's it's definitely uh, there was definitely a lot of trust for for these folks to let us uh, you know to let us in at that level. Um, so to get specific, the thing that I think really has built trust uh, between us and our clients is when Matt and I you know get on an airplane and go sit and draw on a whiteboard with a bunch of people for. Um, you know, for an afternoon or two days or, or, you know, however long it takes to solve what we're trying to do. Um, I think just that experience with them, um, you know, uh, allowing, allowing them to see how we think and that, you know, we're trying to approach each project anew, you know, that we're, we're hopefully tr- not spending a lot of time sort of trying to build up our own credibility, but really just trying to fully understand the situation um, and figure out uh, how we can, how we can solve it. So, yeah, Matt can talk. Uh, Matt, you start talking about that. <laughs> sure, sure. And one of the things that Dan said a little bit earlier is really important for us, which is like a strategic partnership or embedding or just this kind of really close relationship we have with our clients. Um, one of the things that is really important to us in developing these relationships is communicating to our clients at every step of the way that, like, we – this website we're working on is our website and the, 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 the words we're using are we, not you. And, you know, of course you can just, that can be a gimmick, but it's not. It's, it's how we look at it. We embed ourselves into the organization and we understand their needs and we make those needs our needs. And when something comes up, we're understanding the business need and then we're saying, okay, we got it. We'll take care of that. We'll figure out the solution. We'll figure out the technology. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why I often say like, yeah, we use Laravel a lot because we think it helps us satisfy the needs of our clients. But we're not a Laravel shop. We're not even necessarily a web shop. We're a solution-providing shop that happens to focus most on web technologies. But it's really about being in the space where we're in a relationship with a client where we say we we hear and understand or maybe even often anticipate your needs. And no matter what goes on, um, we we can show you and we do prove to you and we you know show over time that we got it. Like whatever it's going to take, we got it. And we want to give them that confidence that like we'll take care of it. Whether that means we will come up with a technical solution or we'll show that their needs are at the forefront of our minds or we'll put in not like the extra work as if like we're all working 120 hour work weeks or something. But when something comes up that is just extremely vital or time sensitive, we show that their priorities are our priorities and that we're in line with them with that. And I think that's really important. It's just kind of like becoming family would be, I think maybe a little too much to say, but just really becoming a part of the team. You mentioned that understanding their business needs was vital. How important is it that the rest of your team understands these needs and how does that knowledge trickle down? Well, let me, let me answer that from a technical perspective and then Dan, maybe you can talk about the trickle down. But from a technical perspective, it's both a little bit in the way we work, um, and also just a little bit of the dynamics of a smaller team. We don't create a 500 page spec before we do each of our, you know, all our projects and then we deliver the spec and then a whole bunch of code monkeys sit in front of the spec and, and deliver the, you know, whatever it takes to, to complete that spec. We come in with like a little bit of a vision and maybe some wireframes, although usually we're wireframing as we go and we're figuring out spec as we go. And we're asking our developers to put themselves in the place of the end users and saying, okay, I know that we need to have these, you know, top level goals. Well, how will I accomplish those goals? Well, let me think about it. And so, you know, sometimes that can deal with a little bit of frustration where you can say, well, all you put was, you know, let me manage groups. Well, there's a lot 
there's a lot that goes into managing groups. You know, what what related data types are there and what, you know, what views are there? Are they paginated? All that kind of stuff. And, and sometimes that needs to go back to the client. Sometimes it goes, go, needs to go back to me or Dan. But often it's like, well, if you were this user who you now understand, because that's a part of our original discovery process, who you now understand the user, the goal is for them to be able to say, okay, I understand this user. As this user, I want X or I want Y. Well, therefore, the best decision in this particular situation is, you know, Z. So understanding the business's needs gives us a metric against which to make every technical decision, every UI decision, every prioritization decision, all those things. And the more people that have that knowledge internally, the more they can really empathize with the end user and with the, the, the business, the more they are able to be self-directed, the more they're able to make good decisions in the face of, face of um, you know, a lack of really strong direction and the more we can be flexible you know we call ourselves an agile ish shop we're not agile you know hardcore or anything like that but we want to be flexible and we definitely believe that you don't know what the solution is going to look like until you're you know until it's there um so we need to equip our developers and anybody else working on the project to be able to understand how do i gauge the importance how do i gauge the values how do i engage not how do i we want to equip our developers to be able to understand in the face of every decision uh, what metrics should I be using for making this decision, I guess. Are your developers directly involved with client communications? On and off. It depends on the project, depends on the developer, depends on the client. Um, often we will try to funnel communications through a single uh, project manager um, and that's not always the way it ends up being. Sometimes a developer has a direct email access to one of the clients. Sometimes it has to do with how technical a client is. So, you know, one of our clients has a few really highly technical people who can speak directly to a developer without any translation, and some of our clients don't. Um, so it, it varies. I have a few questions about your team and how you work with your team. So first of all, what are you looking for in developers when you're trying to build your team? Like, how do you think about this problem? One of the most important things for us, just just stepping back from the client just a little bit, is the ability to learn and self-direct. Uh, often we have been uh, most happy working with folks who have kind of been on their own as a freelancer or something like that, where they've shown that they have the ability to advance their abilities, to advance their career, um, to manage their own time and all that, uh, because we aren't a 100-person shop with 500-page specs there's a lot of uh, shared responsibility and trust among our team. And so we have to have people who can really kind of like do things on their own. Um, we also want empathy. Um, we want developers who are able to understand people outside of the development mindset. So when you get the, you know, the stereotypical uh, kind of neckbeard in the corner closet, you know, you know, hacking out really amazing code who can't understand people, we can't really work with that kind of person because we need someone who can put themselves in the mindset of someone who's very different from them, who's much less technical, who's, you know, who, whose opinions might not make any sense to them. They need to be able to put themselves in that place. Um, and also just as a company, we really value, um, integrity and humility. And that doesn't always have an immediate impact on the work that they're doing, but in terms of what it looks like for us to work with people, those are just values that we have in terms of that's how we want to be as a company. And so that's what we want to look, um, you know, that's the type of person we want to work with. But for us, I think someone who really shows that they have a high level of interpersonal skills and communication ability, those things are a lot more important and ability to learn and teach. Those things are a lot more important to us than development skill. And of course we need good developers, um, but we would take, you know, I think a lot of folks in the, in the HR world talk about like culture fit, like culture fit is mo more important to us um, 
not just because, you know, we want people like us. They don't have to be like us, but they have to have the same set of abilities and values to present our company to our clients in a certain way. And it's more important that you can kind of exist in that world than that you are the master of some particular type of development. Do you find that it's difficult to find developers for your team? Do you end up kind of bringing in a lot of freelancers? Is it difficult to find the people who work well with you? We do bring in freelancers, but we're not finding it particularly difficult to find the developers either. So the reason we bring in a lot of freelancers is because we don't want to grow too quickly. So we reached a point, you know, at least once or twice in the last few years where we had so much work that we were completely incapable. And it was the type of work where we had bid on it in advance or it was a relationship we wanted to continue. We just couldn't say no at that particular moment. And we couldn't handle it internally. And in order to deliver on in a, within a reasonable timeline, we brought in freelancers as contractors to basically flesh out our team so we could finish things in a reasonable amount of time. Now, we could have just gone and hired a whole bunch of people at that point. But hiring takes time. Hiring well takes even more time. Uh, but also, we don't want to hire 15 people and then have those projects end up and be back in maybe a more normal workflow because you can never guarantee how long, you know, an influx of work is going to last and then all of a sudden be stuck. You know, one of the things that Dave and I talk about a lot is we want to grow organically at a reasonable rate. And, you know, we're, we're scared, not scared. Uh, we're trying to ensure that we don't hire so quickly and grow our infrastructure so quickly that we end up putting ourselves in a position that we don't like doing business or looking for business or operating in a way that doesn't line up with our values. That was the first half of your question. What was the other half? I'm sorry. Oh, oh, the other the other question was, are we having trouble finding developers? We have hired um, one full-time developer recently. We developed, we hired Adam Wathen, um, and we also did a hiring process through Laravel Jobs, through Lara Jobs for one of the contract positions that we hired. And both of them took a while. I mean, it's not as if it was an easy process where we just said, hey, you know, friend, do you want to work for us? Okay, great. We did interviews and, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of hours spent between interviewing and writing job applications and all this kind of stuff. Um, but we didn't find ourselves in a place where we didn't have any good applicants. Both times we had plenty of great applicants and there were good and bad things about each of the applicants and and. There's, you know, anytime you have people applying for a job, you know, you're going to go through the process of saying, well, this person excels in this area and this person excels in this area and you're going to make the best decisions. But at no point did we feel like, oh, my gosh, we can't find someone who does what we want. So we'll have to just, you know, deal with lower quality applicants or something. We didn't have that experience at all, especially being remote. That's that's a huge benefit that we have, even though we're only able to do remote in the U.S. and Canada. Um, that opens up tons of opportunities to us because we don't have to look just in Chicago or just in some other, sit, uh, some other city as long as, you know, they're within a place where we can handle legal issues, you know, and payroll issues with them well, which is why it's U.S. and Canada. We have a ton of flexibility that another company might not. So I have a couple, like, hard-hitting questions that I really want to ask you both. And so I'm hoping maybe, Dan, you can respond and then we can kind of hear what Matt has to say. I know that you both do have a technical background, but I'm more interested in the views of the business itself uh, and the client interactions when I'm asking this. Sure. What do you think about software craftsmanship and code quality? How important is that really to your clients? Yeah, that's that's an, a terrific question because a, a big part of my job is going in to the client and advocating for those things because, you know, what we're trying to be the kind of company that does things right, right? So as far as, you know, the current thinking goes, certainly code quality and uh, trying to use modern methodologies and all, all of that 
are super important. We believe, you know, we, we don't believe in, in dumping, you know, unmaintainable code on clients just because they'll pay for it. On the other hand, I have to be able to go in and demonstrate the value of, of, of that stuff because it inevitably has a, you know, a, a bigger upfront price tag. I mean, there's just no, there's just no way around that. So how do I do it is, is a, is a good question. Um, but p- part of it is just trying to, like, like I talked about before, trying to develop these relationships with, with fewer, uh, organizations, but, but ones that ha- that ultimately have more resources really helps us do that. Because if I say to a company that, you know, to a startup that is, is spending its only a hundred thousand dollars on a, uh, on a project, well, you know, it's hard for me to say, well, actually we need more than that because X, Y, and Z and because we want to give you maintainable code. And they're going, well, we just need a product. Like we don't, <laughs> uh, but if, uh, for a, a large organization, they have the ability to look a year out or look, you know, uh, at, a, at a budget that is going to uh, stretch over a longer period of time. So, so there, I, I wish there was an easy answer to the question, but it really comes down to, um, being able to go to the client and, and say, you know, yes, this list of features can be completed for, for this amount of money. But if, you know, uh, that's that's it depends on where you draw your time window. So say it's a four month project, you know, and we can do it for X amount of money. Well, uh, if if you're not investing in code quality, you're not investing in things like test driven design and domain driven design. Like uh, the oh, the ultimate cost of ownership of that software is going to be higher. And so you just you know I have to be able to go in and do a combination of um, you you know using those hard numbers and trying to project what they might be. And just to, to sort of talk about the pain that the, that they may run into if if you know if they don't try to do it the way that we consider to be right, I, I need to have hard numbers and I also need to have a sort of soft case to make you know that that has to do with doing things the right way. That's that's something that I'm still working on in terms of my my message. But you know I I sort of have one foot in development of our business from a financial standpoint and the other foot in the world of of the developer and, and trying to keep my finger at least a little bit on the pulse of, of how things ought to be done. Um, you know, Matt does an amazing job of keeping me abreast of what the deal is. I mean, to be honest, I couldn't, according to modern standards, I mean, I really, I, I can't even call myself a developer because, you know, all of you felt you folks have, have advanced to such a level that it would take me forever to catch up. But, uh, and it's really a cool, it's really, really been cool to watch that, you know, the sort of maturation of, of the, the, the web development stuff in particular, uh, cause it makes, it makes my case easier to make, uh, because things are thought through well and, and there are best practices that are, that are better and better defined over time. So yeah, that's, that's, uh, I guess how I would, I would answer that. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's sometimes a hard pitch, a hard sell when you're saying we're going to do new development methodologies that are going to make things take longer. And of course, People can go back and forth all day, like talk about testing, for example. Does it take longer to write tested code? And some people will say, no, you know, you get good enough that it doesn't. And I would say, well, for us, we're still relatively new at that. Um, it does. However, uh, what Dan said is really important, that the cost of ownership of poorly written, poorly tested, poorly architected code is definitively higher, both in terms of the, the risks that you have and also in terms of the development costs. If you have poorly written, poorly tested code, it's going to break and you're going to have to pay to fix it and it's going to be an emergency and it's going to cause stress and it might get you in trouble with whomever noticed the bug or whatever. Um, and so 
I, I would say that any time you are selling yourself as a professional developer, there's at least a little bit, and it might be you know hidden, but there's a little bit of a narrative of why should you pick me over you know paying ten dollars an hour for some you know offshore development team to crank out really terrible code that just happens to look good on the surface. Whether or not they're explicitly asking you to compare yourself against those folks, that's in there at least a little bit. So the story is, and I don't mean stories as false, but just in terms of the narrative, the narrative to the client is. Yes, in the past, it might have taken three hours to do this thing, and we might be talking about this particular thing taking six hours now. However, at the end of the six hours, we're going to have a little green dot that says this thing is working, and when something else you know, breaks it, then that dot is going to turn red. Or we're going to have these automated acceptance tests so that every single time we push this website to production, you're going to have a little email that basically sends off and says, hey, something broke, rather than somebody in the business, you know, noticing it three weeks down the road and say, whoa, this has been broken for three weeks and you didn't notice it. So it's it requires trust. It requires kind of really understanding what you're talking about. But the more trust you have, the more relationship you have, the more experience you have, the more you can say, like, for example, if you've got experience with a client, you say, hey, you remember that one time that one thing broke and it was really terrible? This test thing or, you know, this architecture thing, you know, will mitigate that sort of concern in the future. Or even if you're talking about less directly, you know, breaking things, architectures and more about DDD or whatever else, you say, you know, you know how it's kind of hard to translate the, the needs of the business to developer speak? Well, this whole DDD thing, you know, makes that easier or whatever. So having trust and just knowing really why we're doing those things helps it be more possible to communicate it to the client. When you say that something takes longer, does that mean you're actually forced to explain discrepancies between your bid and potentially a competitor? Does that does that really come up? I'll take that one. Uh, to be honest, we don't typically do uh, we don't, don't typically work well in situations where we are bidding against someone. We we I have not answered an RFP in a long time, and so you know, and and I, I've been in, in positions to say that. Or I mean, it's not to say that that customers haven't uh, you know taken our our estimates and gone and shopped them against other people. I, that's, it's very possible they have, but um, we uh, have been lucky enough at this point, at least in the, in the past couple of years, to not be in that position. We've more often been in, been in a situation where it's already a trusted client and they're asking us to do additional work or, or you know, work on other you know, initiatives. So, yeah, honestly, I, I don't know how we would do against you know, imagine if you're if you're going for government work or something. I mean, they're required to go get lots of bids. So in that case, you know, I would have to make a very explicit case for doing things the right way and uh, try to define that. But yeah, I mean, that's the reality. Is I think it's, it's I think it's tricky to uh, and and I, I look forward to that challenge at some point soon. But we haven't really had to do it. Well, and honestly, sometimes the the client or the uh, the other company that we're bidding against is ourselves a couple of years ago because we're growing, right? We we weren't at the forefront of the TDD revolution whenever you know that theoretical thing started. So you know, we we have done code in the past for clients that we're working with now that was faster or whatever, you know, could be done more quickly or in less hours or whatever, and would have broken more often than what we're doing now. And that's going to continue to be the case because we're changing our practices. We're changing our methodologies. We're getting hopefully better and more thoughtful and all that stuff. So even, even just the fact that something, you know, especially more technical, you know, clients who can say like, Oh, that thing kind of seems like a similar amount of work to what you did before. And yet the scope is changing. The timelines are changing or there's line items in these proposals that I've never seen before or whatever. Um, in each of those spaces, we just need to be able to, and again, we just want to be upfront with them anyway. We need to say, Hey, we're doing things a little bit different, um, than we used to. And here's why. 
do you end up in situations sometimes where the client is really not interested in the additional costs? They want to kind of push you and, and force your hand and say, hey, just get this done in, in a smaller time budget? I mean, definitely. Uh, definitely. There's r- recent cases, and even in the last like few months, where it's become clear to us before we even get to the actual number bid that the that the customer is just not they're they're not going to be able to to get on board with it. And uh, there's been times where I just haven't even given them the 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 numbers. In some cases, it's just because they they just truly don't have the physical budget to do it, and they have they have a, a feature list that's too long. Um, so what I would often do in those circumstances is try to get them to drastically decrease the scope uh, and, and try to execute just a few features really, really well. But that's hard for people to sell politically internally sometimes, right? I mean, if they've already developed a spec and it's been circulated inside of their group, for them to come back and say, well, for the, for the money that we, we had allocated, well, we can get like a quarter of that, but we can get it done really well. Well, I mean, that's, that, that's a tough sell. Uh, sometimes, but it's not going to stop me from trying to get them to do it. Uh, in some cases, you know, depending on what kind of product it is or if it's, a, you know, what the site is, it might be better for them to reduce the features and do them really well. So, you know, we try to try to head some of these things off by also being involved at the UX and product development level to get people to really hone in on, on scope. But uh, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard sometimes. Now, this may be kind of a tough question, and, and I don't expect you to necessarily answer it, but have you been bitten by attempts at code quality? If so, what could you of your team done to have avoided it? I think that's a map question. <laughs> I'll answer the question a little bit more broadly and then see if uh, it comes down to an answer to the more specific question that you're asking. Um, we have tried to increase our development practices as a whole, um, not not just bettering our code quality, but also bettering how we work together. So we've tried to implement some of the agile practices and methodologies that are maybe a little less common um, among folks who are just kind of moderately agile and things with story points and burn downs and using uh, Pivotal Tracker as a tool. And a lot of times these things that sound really great in theory about the amount of knowledge and control and awareness you're going to have about your processes um, don't work well in our group. And sometimes it has to do with the type of people we have, the type of management we have, being me and Dan. Sometimes it has to do with um, the number of people we have. If you've got, you know, several dedicated project managers with 30 developers, there's some of these things that would be more valuable and more, you know, worth the amount of time to take to implement. Whereas with, you know, a smaller team, that might not be the case. Um, so in terms of at least practices, we've definitely implemented some things just in that specific space that you know, we found ourselves midway into a project and trying to implement those things and realizing that they're costing us. Um, they sound great in theory, but in practice, they're costing us more than the benefit we're getting. And we end up going back to a simpler solution or or looking for an alternative, but not not going with what the best and greatest and fanciest is. In terms of code quality, we have I, I would say we've lost time. I don't know if it's a being bitten. We've lost time by trying to change the way we do things midstream, you know, for example, like in terms of actual code style, for example, you know, midstream in several projects, we just realized that conflicting, you know, concepts about how we're going to really go forward and make our code style better was actually holding us back. And so then we lost a whole bunch of time and converting everything to a particular code style and then implementing that in, in our continuous integration server in a way that took a lot longer than it would have otherwise or, you know, sometimes we get midway into a project and we say, oh, this particular architectural decision we made wasn't very good. Let's 
to make this other one. It's going to be pure. It's going to be better. And it's only going to take us a weekend and it ends up taking us four weeks kind of thing, you know. So in the abstract, of course, you know, sometimes our desires to do what's best has, you know, not been as simple as we thought, not as beneficial as we thought, you know, not as good for our team or our way of working as we thought. Do you have any insights on how you could perhaps uh, slowly roll in new ideas to try them out and see if they work with your team? Has that been a conversation you've had? Yeah. Oh, Dan, you want to say? Yeah, I, w- I was just going to answer that from a client standpoint. So uh, for, for with one of our, our most important clients, over a period of years, as our you know toolkit evolved and our I feel like our level of sophistication as developers evolved through Matt's leadership, I mean, we were able to bleed in new features and new, sort of new methodologies over time and work them into their code base. So and Matt, Matt would call it like sort of sneaking Laravel into the, you know, into certain spots. And uh, w- with this particular client, it was, it was interesting because uh, right after Matt gave a talk about doing that and, you know, sneaking Laravel into, into projects at uh, Lair County U, literally that same day, our contact app, our biggest client called me and said, yeah, we want to re- we just want to redo the whole thing in Laravel, like starting now. That was a neat thing to watch. You know, as they sort of began to see the value of uh, having a good and maintainable code base, um, or you know, just giving um, attention to code quality, they actually sold that you know up the approval chain in the organization and came back to us without us even asking and uh, asked us to do that. So I really think that's a super valuable thing to be able to do. It's an art. I mean, I feel like Matt did an amazing job at that particular thing. So Matt, you can talk about it from the from the standpoint of, of the devs. Sure. Um, and I mean, the, my talk at Laracani U was definitely founded around this concept. But essentially, you know, I, there's a book called Undercover UX, where the author basically talks about like introducing practices of you know how to really care about user experience in a company that might not have that value, and how you can do it undercover. You sneak it into this project or that project, and we do the same thing in terms of architectural and you know technical pieces and and the reason that you know the context was Laravel is because Laravel is has been kind of the, so this this site that we're talking about was previously on some of Laravel's not successors but the the places Laravel came from and and so it kind of it gave space for for example bringing in one component of Laravel as you know okay it's great it's fancy it's new um but it also in brings in testing or it brings in better code quality or it brings in continuous integration server builders or whatever. Um, so essentially what we're doing here is piece by piece as we can justify it, whether it's because we are re-architecting a particular piece of code at the moment or whether it is a bug popped up in another piece of code or whether we were able to just find some rollover budget and just say, hey, this is going to really benefit the, the business in X and Y way with testability or less bugs or more reporting or whatever. We just say, let's do a rolling improvement. And of course, you know, depending on the context or depending on the budget or depending on the needs and the, the pain points for that particular client, it might change what we're sneaking in or what we're working in. But this whole incremental thing is, is it works. Um, and a little bit at a time works. And, and if, if you bring in one little bit, you know, you come in and you say, Hey, we're really going to see a lot of value if we move from our internal mail server 
to one of these third-party SaaS um, mail services like uh, Mandrinal or Mailgun, or hey, if we bring in some acceptance tests and some unit tests or whatever ends up being, and, and that works and it's successful and they see the value in it and they see that the cost-to-benefit ratio is actually really good in their favor, then next time you propose something like that, you're going to have more weight and more trust um, behind your recommendation to do these kind of these things. And so that in terms of a client perspective, that's a thing. And in terms of code bases, it's also the same way. I mean, basically, if you look at a code base is, you know, X thousand lines of code, well, you're basically replacing, you know, however many hundred or thousand lines of kind of older, more antiquated, less well-architected piece of code with new ones. And sometimes that's, you know, replacing one component, or maybe that's replacing an entire route in a website, or maybe that's, you know, replacing the back end but keeping the front end old or replacing the front end and keeping the back end old. But there's a lot of different ways to come at it, and we just take every single way, you know, in our arsenal to slowly improve uh, things as we go. So I want you to take a moment and imagine a developer who maybe isn't incredibly business savvy. And and I want you to kind of help me say something to this developer. What should they know from your perspective about balancing their desire for having more investment in what they're working on, in making it more of what they would like it to be uh, against the realities of working with clients and, and handling budgets? That's a great question. I'm glad you said take a minute because I want to think about it. <laughs> you okay if I go first, Dan, or do you want to start? Yeah, no, go for it. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm turning it over. I would say that we mentioned earlier empathy is important, and I think empathy is absolutely vital in answering that question. It's the ability to understand and really internalize the values of the client, of the business, um, is the absolute most important thing because it leads to all the other pieces that are going to get you there. So, for example, if you're really excited about some geeky new thing, um, you need to be able to understand the value of that geeky new thing to your client. Um, and that's both going to allow you to recognize, is it as important as it feels to you as a developer? But also, it's going to help you understand how to sell it to the client. If it is extremely valuable to them and they're going to find value and benefit to their business in X and Y ways, then you come to them and you say, hey, X and Y. You don't come and say, DDD or whatever new technology you're excited about. You say X and Y benefit. You're selling benefits to your customers. And it's not selling like you're manipulating them, but that's you need to tell them what you're doing for them. And so the ability to empathize with them and, and make their needs your needs, make their priorities your priorities is going to give you that space not only to, to judge whether your new geeky thing is even really valuable to them because you're being a bad developer if you push something on a client that's not actually better for them, but it's also going to give you a space to actually sell it to them because they're, they won't spend money on something unless it's going to benefit their business. And so you can come to them and you say, Here's how it's going to benefit your fitness, business, and you should spend the money with me because I'm, you know, whatever. I'll do it for you. And it's going to be great, whatever. But the, basically what you're trying to describe to the client is your business is going to have this benefit by me doing this geeky thing I'm really excited about right now. Yeah, Matt said it's terrific, and I just wanted to highlight one particular um, – I, I can't say it any better than that for sure. But uh, you, you mentioned DDD very briefly there, Matt, and i, I got to say that um, as someone who – like I mentioned, I'm not really writing any code these days, but I am keeping my, you know, I'm keeping track of, of what's up. And the pro watching the process of developers go through a, a DDD-driven process on a, on a new project, I think I think it's a, a really good trend because what it does is it it sort of forces the developer to to think empathically about what the client's business is, right? So if we're you know taking the time to Name our objects and methods, you know, according to things that are going to make sense to uh, to the business. 
well, that, that, that forces us to be thinking like that person. So I, th- I just think that's a terrific trend, and I, I, I hope that it's, uh, it continues to gain traction. Have you discovered any heuristics that a dev might be able to use to know if they might be attempting to over-engineer the software? Hmm. That's a fantastic question. We, I mean, we're in the middle of this conversation as a group who has little experience in ever doing anything that could be called over-engineering and really trying to grow in our development ability. And we really are, in, you know, we're probably three-quarters of the way into our current first project that we would really kind of say it's in the the DDD, you know, workflow. And we've been in the middle of the conversation about are we over-engineering or not on an almost daily basis. Um, and I think over-engineering, a lot of that has to do with rather than working with the problem in front of you, it's working with the perceived potential problem. And so how do you gauge that? Well, you know, you gauge that by knowing whether that perceived potential problem will happen, won't happen, or may happen with a certain likelihood. So for us, a lot of the abstraction that we introduced in this latest project we're working on would be overkill for the majority of the projects we work on. I mean, if you've looked at any of the, you know, Laravel or Slim-based um, open source projects I've released, they're, they're, you know, one or two days of work with, you know, uh, active record models right in the middle of my controllers. I mean, nobody who's excited about architecture would look at any of those and look at, you know, anything other than disdain. But the thing is, they get the job done. So I'm not in the middle of those, you know, simple little, you know, crud apps doing this amazing, you know, architectural patterns. Whereas this particular client we just work with, um, they redo their website every five years, and they've got many, 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 many different web platforms that are all working with the same kind of set of business entities and the same set of databases and the same set of services. And so abstracting it has definite and immediate business potential, not only in terms of what we know is coming, but the other projects we already work for for them. And so for in that space, the over-engineering, you know, we'd have to go wildly abstract to over-engineer in a space where we have immediate concrete potential to reuse the same code across platforms, across use cases, across, you know, whatever. Whereas this same level of abstraction on some other sites we work on, like, for example, maybe like a REST API for an iOS app would be just absurd. It would be a total waste of time. Um, so I, I think, again, I mean, I'm like a, you know, a beating a dead horse here, but uh, our broken record, it's it's empathy. It's And of course, it's more than that, but it's understanding what are the specific needs for the code that you're writing. And don't write it for some hypothetical future that may never happen. But if there's really good reason to think that, you know, some level of uh, additional engineering or abstraction is going to help you in something that you think is almost definitely going to come or is definitely going to come, then doing it early is good. So I think that the space where we are is you're always writing a balance between being what people would call pragmatic, which is often just lazy and short-sighted, you know, just do what works right now, versus being, you know, architectural and future-minded and abstract and engineering to the point where you've addressed every potential situation that might ever happen, but Dealing with it in the day-to-day basis is completely impossible. And in every project, you have to just understand what the, ba- the appropriate balance is for that project. Okay, so this is uh, like a hard question, perhaps, but you'll have to you'll have to tell me, uh, Dan. How important is quick turnaround really? I mean, sometimes the client needs something quick, and sometimes maybe you have a, little, a room to play. But if a developer is choosing one tactic over another to implement a solution. Can you give that developer some insight into how it affects your business to be able to get that work turned around more quickly in like a calendar perspective? 
Sure. I mean, to answer the first part, how how important is quick turnaround? I guess I would say quick turnaround isn't as important as turnaround that matches up with expectations, right? So, um, and, you know, in software, it's notoriously difficult to estimate your work and, and, and then be accurate about it. So another part of my job is to help set realistic expectations with the, with the client. And then, you know, to plan on, I guess it sort of depends on if you're talking about, like, actual like release date for for a big you know a big uh, piece of software or a big website or you know the sort of like um day to day turning out a new feature and getting it out there etc you know in the in the latter case I, I would say what i try to do is you know i may tell the client one date and tell the developer a different date i'm just being honest um you know sometimes that happens where you just you just know that uh, something's going to come up and you know if you you stick around developers for for long enough i mean you realize that it's you know it's not even anybody's fault but you know like there's always unknowns so you know i try not to box people into the point where it's like oh you're going to wind up having to stay late or something like that we really really try not to do that so uh, usually if that happens it's my fault and not the dev's fault (laughs) if it's late so that's how i kind of try to look at it you know if it be if it comes down to a question of like did they decide to be extra thorough or do like um you know implement some sort of intense new architecture pattern or whatever well that's my fault too because somewhere along the line how they were going to approach a particular thing ought to have been a question that Matt or I asked them and, and got them to, to be specific about. Um, one one thing we've done recently, that this was Matt's idea, I thought this was kind of cool, it happened to be with contractors, but we basically, uh, for for one particular very boxed up like sub-project that we had uh, some, uh, some folks working on, we said, look, we know that you're the kind of folks that like to try out new things and like to push the boundaries of, of uh, what's, you know, of of what's modern and coding practices, et cetera. We said, uh, okay, so let's do this on a fixed budget, right? And you guys can go and execute it whatever way you think is possible. And if it goes over the amount of time, you know, here's the amount of money, you know, and then it's sort of like a, would you like to do it for that much? And if they, you know, they happen to say yes. Uh, and I think that worked nicely. I mean, they, they seem to, you know, and we let them work as a individual team and, and then come back and, you know, deliver in, in whatever way they thought was appropriate. So I'm not sure if that answers the question specifically, but um, to summarize, I mean, I think it's usually my fault and not the devs if something is late, <laughs> the, um, which might seem ironic, but uh, a lot of times it's either expectations not being set properly or something uh, that short circuits in that communication chain. One really valuable um trait in a programmer is the ability to do uh, what we call in front end progressive enhancement, which basically means uh, get out MVP, a minimal viable product, uh, not just for the whole product but for a particular feature or whatever, uh, get the basics in there and then show it and then improve it and then show it and then improve it and then show it. And that's something that, you know, agile stresses a lot, which I appreciate, but it's, it's good in general. So if you say, let's say you've got four weeks to do a particular feature, and you get to the end of four weeks and you are still two weeks away from being done for the, the complete feature. Well, that's a really bad spot to be in. Instead, if one weekend you deliver a feature, you know, a, a subset of that feature where 75% is, it, is stubbed out, but it works and it's visible and we can give feedback. And then we do that same thing four times. You may not be at the end of four weeks at the place you expected that you were going to, you know, end up 
at the beginning of the four weeks, but you will have had feedback. You will have cut things. You will have known how far you are along the process. The client will have known. You will be able, you know, you've been able to reprioritize. And so it's not even just about particularly about speed, but it's, um, can you develop in a way where you can flex, you can predict, you can roll, you know, roll with changes or roll with things taking longer than you expect or roll with the, the scope changing in a way where, you know, the develop, the, the leadership team, the development team and the client were all kind of working together towards the final deliverable being on budget within a reasonable feature set, you know, on time, even if it's not exactly what we expected up front. Okay. Real talk. What happens when you miss a deadline? When, yeah. when interacting with your client, I mean. No, that's that's a good concrete question. Um, usually, from my standpoint, I mean, I really just go explain what happened. Um, but more importantly, it, it's it, I can count probably on you know two hands or hopefully one hand where like a big deadline has been missed and we didn't know until right beforehand, right? So usually it becomes clear some amount of time ahead of the deadline that it's not going to happen, right? And so that's when sort of I have to go into politics mode a little bit and try to try to do some damage control and just make sure that we, you know, first of all, fully understand what happened internally. Like, why did we miss the deadline? Um, and, you know, if it's truly our fault, that's actually easier because then I can go and say, hey, listen, you know, we just didn't plan effectively or, or whatever. What's trickier is when the deadline is missed and it's it's mainly the client's fault, which which happens. I mean, there, there's that happens a lot. So having to go in in that circumstance and be tactful, but truthful and not sell my team, you know, sell them out or throw them under the bus, uh, but also not sort of indict the client for screwing up. That's tricky. That sort of thing is a big part of my job and a big part of me just being in a, in a leadership position with our company. Yeah, it's never fun <laughs> when a deadline is missed, but usually we know ahead of time and hopefully we've already started trying to manage those, you know, the realities um, uh, as much time in advance as possible. So. How much should the developer feel responsible for that situation? What kind of, I guess I want to think about from your perspective, what kind of those pressures should the developer feel and what kind maybe should they be insulated from a bit? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, how, how responsible should they feel? I mean, I think everybody feels responsible for, you know, for the, every professional feels responsible for delivering what they've, they've said and, and everybody feels bad when, when you can't do it, but it happens a lot. And, you know, in many cases, it's just an unavoidable part of the nature of, of programming and of software. Um, but sometimes it comes from, and I, this is, looking back into my past, I remember this experience where I'm still not convinced that I won't be able to just turn on the jets and finish it. Right. So I haven't gone to the, to whoever, you know, whether it's a client or whether it's someone supervising me and said, Hey, this deadline is at risk. So I think part of it is being really honest with yourself and saying, okay, I'm 40% of the way through we're 80% of the way through the time. You know, it's not all of a sudden going to get magically quicker and easier so let me just be humble enough to say, go and tell the person that I report to that this deadline is at risk. And if you do that, I mean, I, it's hard for, you know, it would be difficult for me to be like upset at anyone as long as they were, as long as they were honest in that way. But I know that's, that's sometimes hard because you want to believe that you can do it, but it's so much worse to let the deadline 
be at risk than it is to just, you know, say, hey, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to, to pull it off. Yeah. And for a developer, I mean, missing a deadline is not not a it's not an issue. I mean, now, if it's reflective of a bigger issue, like you don't know how to manage your time or whatever, there's issues there. But what is an issue is being in a place where you feel like you're going to miss a deadline and you don't tell us. Like, that's a huge trust issue with us and developers. And one of the things we just want to communicate to them is like, hey, look, just just tell me. And we do, you know, we're obsessive about trying to understand better and better with each day what, you know, how to estimate well and how to understand our progress well and how to figure out how much work is left well. And I have a daily meeting with, uh, with one of our, you know, our senior developer and then with our operations manager to talk about the state of all of our projects and to make sure they're all on time and everything like that to try and avoid these issues. And, and that also reflects the fact that, um, the responsibility for getting things done on time is, is spread across the whole company. I mean, Dan said that he's responsible. I'm responsible. And, you know, the project manager, if there is one who's not me, is responsible and the developer is responsible. Um, I think the worst thing to see in a developer other than not communicating to us um, is being uh, not being self-aware. Um, so as much as is possible with the amount of tasks, the amount of work and the amount of time in front of you, we would want a developer to understand. Um, I know I work at the speed. I understand how much work there is ahead of me with the, you know, with within reason, the ability of the developer to predict, you know, how long something's going to take, which and we all know that's a pretty flexible amount of time. But within reason, I should be aware of and concerned for deadline of this project. And again, I, I, I can't believe I keep saying this, but it's 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 empathy and it's caring about your manager and it's caring about your business and it's caring about the client enough to say that rather than because this kind of the stereotypical experience that we don't want to have and have had before, um, it's just kind of like where someone you come to someone, you say, well, you didn't do what I asked for or you didn't think of this particular use case for the client or you didn't deliver it in time, you didn't communicate to us and you should have and it's not like we're asking some crazy things of you. It's just, it, w- it would be reasonable for you to do whatever this thing is. If a developer throws up their hands and just says, oh, well, you didn't tell me to, that is bad. That is that is a sign of the lack of empathy. That's a sign of lack of responsibility. It's a lack of integrity. If you are in a space where you are seeing you know, something off you should be noticing it. You should be speaking up. You should be doing something about it. And one of the traits we love the most in some of our um, in our developers is when they notice a bug and they cat- catalog it and they work on fixing it and something comes up and someone's like, oh, there's this big bug. And they say, oh, yeah, and I noticed it. I researched it. I fixed it in 30 minutes or I noticed it, but it wasn't something I could knock off without affecting the deadline. So I already talked to my supervisor about it and I put it into Trello here or whatever, like taking responsibility and really caring about those things. It goes a long way. Even if you don't, even if you're not the best estimator ever, even if you miss something, the fact that you're taking responsibility and communicating often about it goes a really, really long way. Okay, so before we sign off, I really want to ask you guys each, imagine uh, a developer maybe you see on Twitter or somewhere and you just feel like they really don't get it. What is like one piece of advice or one thing that you wish that, that they would just get? So... That's a good question again, but um, I think the one thing that I would I would say that has that helped me over the years was, you know, when you're doing client work, um, you probably are doing work across a variety of industries or just you know uh, working with people that are doing vastly different things. Like you may have one project that's in the healthcare space, another one that's in I don't know sports, anything like that. Whatever, yeah. What something that really helped me is. You know, ultimately, your job might be generating code and and making software that works. But knowing 
something, getting some base level of knowledge about the actual thing that you're building or about that industry, I think is really important. So, you know, for instance, we do a lot of work in biotech and it became a lot more interesting to me once I did a bit of reading up on, you know, just the broader perspective of what their business is trying to accomplish. Um, software development can become a pretty abstract, you know, activity. And when your, your head is buried in a screen with code, sometimes hard to 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 think about you know what this what, how this actually matters right so f- for me when i think that okay this is a, this is a small but important component of this organization that's making you know these incredible cancer drugs that are giving people more months and years of their lives okay so now i'm doing something that is real and exists um for for a real purpose for me, that that's that's the thing that comes to mind is, you know, don't just don't just write code, you know, back up and, and learn a little bit about what it's for. Um, you're not going to be surprised to hear my answer. When I see developers on Twitter who frustrate me, I'm frustrated because they don't have any empathy. They're sitting there in their own world about their own dreams about architecture or software laws or, you know, whatever. And they're looking down their noses at some other way of doing things or they're they can't imagine how someone could possibly do that, you know, or someone could possibly value this over that. And who knows what it is that they're valuing? And sometimes it's stuff that's really current in the active conversations like how could you like Active Record or how could you like Laravel or how could you like CodeIgniter or how could you want to work in Drupal or or maybe it's not technology. Maybe it's a, a way of doing things or whatever. Um and I, I get most frustrated when I look at someone in that context. I'm like, are you really that incapable of putting yourself in somebody else's shoes? Like step out of your own world and your world might be anything. It might be white male America. It might be developer. It might be who knows what it is. You know, it might be PHP. It might be Ruby. It might be something else. Get out of your, your world a little bit and like care about other people and learn about how they think and learn about what their values are and what made them make those decisions. And even if they're the wrong decisions, even once you learn it, why are they making the wrong decisions? What, what, you know, what things led them to be in that place? Um, and that's for other developers. That's for clients. That's for whatever. And I think the most that I would want for, I think for developers in that space is just to, like when you're when you're feeling really strongly, when you're frustrated, when you don't understand, when you're going on a you know a tirade on Twitter or whatever, like step back and understand why is the other person acting the way they are? Why am I so frustrated with them? You know, or if you're if you just can't believe how this person is that way on Twitter, or they're always so much like this. Okay, why? Why are they like that? You know, how can you understand that? How can you develop a relationship with that? And for me, one of the things that's helped the most in that is. The more I'm frustrated with somebody, the more difficult I find them to interact with, the more they kind of just trigger me, getting really upset and out of control, like the more of a problem that reveals me, like I need to get my stuff together. And so usually, um, I'm revealing my secret here, I try to develop a relationship with people in that circumstance. And of course, right now I'm t- talking primarily about developer on or Twitter wars or even when I wasn't in development. Um, I, I try to develop a relationship with someone and say like, look, there's there's got to be a reason. Why don't I get to know this person and become their friend? And I may end up finding that, you know, we have things in common or there's some hurt behind this or whatever. Um, and, you know, that it's a little different to apply that in a, in a client space. Um, but in the client space, it's the same thing. How can you get to know your clients and what they value? And so in, in terms of deciding what you're doing, it's care about what you're 
your clients care about, care about what your your customers care about, and see why do they exist as a company. It's easier to do with someone like you know, like Dan was talking about in the biotech. Well, they want to cure cancer. Okay, it's really easy to get very excited about that. But whatever it is, if you're doing work for someone, you should care at least a little bit about their business goals being achieved. So figure out what those business goals are, and really, our job is to achieve our clients' business goals. And there's a there's a thing that reminds me of is. When I was in, you know, middle school and high school, I ran a BBS with my brother out of our, you know, uh, second bedroom and, uh, we built our own computers and we were in, you know, Windows and Linux and all that kind of stuff. And I started reading this blog called Lifehacker. And at one point their shtick was, don't live to geek, geek to live. And the, the concept there was, don't spend your whole life doing geeky things, building computers, tweaking software, all that kind of stuff. Those things should exist to make your life better. Um, and I think the same is true for all this programming stuff. We're not doing this for the sake of coding standards or architectural patterns. We're doing those coding standards and architectural patterns or whatever else for the sake of, you know, our clients, for the sake of our software being effective and efficient and predictable and, and consistent and not breaking whatever, whatever the goals are. All these things are just means to the end. Um, and so we need to step back a little bit and understand what is the end that these things are the means to. Wow, those are great answers. Thank you so much. I think we're at time, and I'm, I'm really sad to end our conversation, but I really want to thank both of you so much for taking time out of your day and talking to me. I really have enjoyed the conversation. Thank, thank you, Sean. Yes, it's a ton of fun.